from the Center for European Reform. This is the CER podcast. Posons-nous sérieusement la question de l'avenir que nous voulons et ayons tous ensemble le courage de le construire. Für uns in Deutschland ist das Bekenntnis zum vereinten Europa Teil unserer Staatsräson. A strong united Europe is a necessity for the world because an integrated Europe remains vital to our international order. This is the moment for Europe to lead the way towards a new vitality. Welcome to the latest podcast from the Centre for European Reform. I'm Ian Bond. I'm the CER's Director of Foreign Policy. And we're going to be looking across the Atlantic in this podcast ahead of the US election on November the 3rd, although I suppose in reality the election has already been going on for some time with early voting in many states. This is certainly an election that will have important implications for Europeans, for NATO, for the European Union, and certainly for the UK as well. And joining me to discuss the election and its possible consequences are three speakers with extensive experience in Washington's corridors of power. Sir Nigel Scheinwald, who's my former boss as British ambassador to the US, uh, bridging the George W. Bush and Obama periods, and before that, foreign policy advisor to Tony Blair, Corey Shackey, Director of Foreign and Defense Policy at the American Enterprise Institute, who worked under both George Bushes in the Pentagon, the NSC, and the State Department, and Rachel Elohus, Deputy Director and Senior Fellow with the Europe Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, who worked in the Pentagon under Obama and was for three years seconded to the UK Ministry of Defense, and so has, I suppose, a somewhat unusual perspective on transatlantic defense cooperation. But Nigel, perhaps I could start with you. You and I were both in Washington for the 2008 campaign. And it sometimes seems to me that European politicians think they understand the US political system and electoral system better than in reality they actually do. In 2016, many Europeans were more shocked by Trump's success than perhaps they should have been. I mean, when you were in in Washington in 2008, did you think that there were things that that were difficult to explain to to London or where London thought it knew what what was going on, but in fact had it wrong? And are there things that you think Europeans and the British might get wrong this time? Yes, thanks. Thanks, Ian. Um, Look, I mean, there's no lack of politicians um, in the UK and around the rest of um, Europe who are American election nerds. I mean, this is a source of huge fascination for um, people interested in politics over here. And people watch it um, with a rather unnatural degree of detailed um, observation, staying up into the night to watch debates and everything else. I don't think that by and large, um, European politicians, even though they're expert on the detail, really understand the way in which Um, American presidential candidates in particular can leap to fame and electoral success from nowhere. So the Obama or the Trump um, phenomena are difficult for Europeans. And I think um, that there is also, over a long period, probably a prejudice in Europe towards Democrats and away from Republicans. Um, And that's probably because Republicans are seen as more associated with um, culture wars, with guns and religion and so on, which are more problematic, I think, in Europe. Um, and that means that, you know, by and large, Europeans underestimated Ronald Reagan, underestimated President George W. Bush, perhaps less his, uh, his father. 
And although it doesn't apply this time, there's a natural tendency in Europe uh, and in most other places to feel comfortable with incumbents. I think that isn't the case um, for the 2020 uh, election for, um, for obvious reasons. I mean, what you have difficulty with, certainly as an ambassador in, uh, in Washington, I think this applies to anybody, um, the need for impartiality, um, the need for governments to, st- to stay out of it, whatever their private feelings. There's a great tendency to take literally um, what people like your uh, Rachel and uh, Corrie today, when, when they are advising campaigns, um, to treat what they say as uh, you know, an almost literal precursor of what the next administration will, will do. Um, you know, there's a, a huge tendency to see the process of transition in particular, once you get to that stage, as an enormously rational process in, into which foreign governments can feed ideas and proposals like in a sort of board game. And of course, it really isn't like that. And probably to underestimate the importance of other governments generally in the process. At this stage, that isn't the main concern of the, um, of the candidates. And this time round, Ian, I mean, I'd say, you know, the, the, the great danger is obviously believing the polls. Uh, I'm not saying that the polls are wrong, but I mean, most European governments will want um, a Biden victory um, and will probably believe that it won't be very close and have not, have not found it easy to understand the, the, the strength of support that um, President Trump has had, um, you know, all the way through. Yeah, yeah. Well, that, that probably gives me a very nice lead-in for for Corey. So uh, let's assume that the uh, the polls are are wrong. Um, uh, so what would it mean if um, Trump won a second term in foreign policy terms? Uh, you know, from a European European perspective, in his first term, he certainly uh, said some pretty tough things about uh, about NATO and about the European Union. And he's not been a great friend of transatlantic free trade. So, what, what do you think a, a, a Trump second term might um, might mean? And is there any good news for Boris Johnson in it? Uh, so, what a second term would mean is an extension of the of the impulses and policies that President Trump has put in place. You know, the, the one thing that Europeans should understand about President Trump is that he doesn't care about many things. The things he cares about, he believes he already understands and therefore is not open to new or different or contradictory information or ideas. Um, and so I think in a second Trump term, you should expect even more friction in the transatlantic relationship the continuation of President Trump's desire to use national security grounds for economic and populist purposes, like the slapping the national security tariffs on Canadian steel. I think you will see much greater reduction of uh, U.S. troops stationed in Europe, in Japan, and South Korea and involved in counterterrorism or uh, regime stabilization efforts in Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, I would expect a even more friction in North American relationships, the continuation of the border wall that President Trump has been so enthusiastic about, a even more pressure to close off immigration and in particular to close off refugee and asylum admissions to the United States. 
they're already at a 40-year historic low. And I think President Trump will take a re-election as a validation that the American public favors the policies he has been attempting to put into place. A second thing I would say is that I believe a second Trump administration would be a lot more effective in carrying out its policies than they were in a first term. You know, Ben Wittes, the founder of Lawfare, uh, famously described the Trump administration as malevolence outpaced by incompetence. And it's partly that a lot of establishment Republicans like me wouldn't serve in a Trump administration. And it's also that uh, some establishment Republicans like John Kelly and Jim Mattis and Rex Tillerson, who were in the administration at the start, have been replaced with people more pliable and supportive of the president's actions. So even where you had effective people in place, those people were not working to advance the president's policies. And the third is that they have the experience now of having done the Muslim ban, of having had many of their policies uh, kicked back by the courts and had to figure out how to make them pass legal scrutiny. Yeah. Well, now they have a much more pliable court, so that may be uh, less of a less of a problem in itself. I'm less confident of that than you are. I I think it's a mistake to conflate people's personal politics with well-qualified high-level jurists' willingness to apply the law. Okay. Well, that, that's an optimistic take. Um, I, I mean, just on, on the Boris Johnson question, I mean, apart from the fact that maybe Trump can offer Boris Johnson some advice on how you cut migration, which uh, continues to be a preoccupation for the conservative government, which they haven't really been very successful at dealing with. Um, you know, is, is Trump likely to prioritize a free trade agreement with the UK because, you know, he likes Boris Johnson? Or is he likely to, you know, take his extremely skeptical approach to free trade in general and apply that to the UK as well? I think more likely the latter, Ian. I think he's likely, you know, President Trump doesn't actually understand very much about trade. Like, for example, the importance of intellectual property protections, the, the value of transnational investment for innovation. And that's particularly true in the British-American uh, relationship. That is, we're, we're both go-go, risk-tolerant, investment-driven economies. And President Trump doesn't value that. So it's more likely to have a mercantilist tinge to any agreement. And I also think he doesn't think trade agreements are advantageous to the United States. So it won't be high on his list of priorities. Okay, that's a, that's an interesting point, which I think perhaps there are a lot of people on this side of the Atlantic who will need to hoist that aboard. Rachel, perhaps I can turn to you and, and uh, you know, look at some of the same issues from the perspective of a possible Biden presidency. 
I mean, what what does his record as a senator and then as vice president tell us about his his attitudes to the transatlantic relationship and to the EU and NATO? Thanks, Ian. Well, yes, fortunately, as you've said, he has a long record, first as a senator and then as vice president. He's a regular speaker at the Munich Security Conference, which is the place to be for transatlantic security watchers. So there's actually a lot we can discern from previous statements. Overall, I'd I'd probably begin with three real differences. Um, The first is just this genuine belief that allies and partners enable and magnify US power. Now that is, as as Corey mentioned, you know some of the folks who had been in the Trump administration early on, like Jim Mattis, they also shared that view. Um, unfortunate, and that's captured in the national defense strategy as well. Um, unfortunately, that hasn't played out in practice in this administration. So I think early on you would see attempts by the Biden administration to show um, very concretely this belief that allies and partners enable and magnify our power rather than detract from it. So not talking about the EU as a foe, but the EU as a partner. Uh, secondly, I think a Biden administration would have um, a much more multilateral rather than unilateral approach to transatlantic relations. Um, you know, we hear every day um, America first and this idea that um, if other countries win, then America by default loses. I do not think that's uh, the approach of the Biden administration. If we look at back at some of his comments on NATO, he talks about the alliance as the single most significant military alliance in the history of the world. He talks about it as the foundation for all U.S. power. Um, he talks about NATO as the heart of our collective security. Um, and likewise, uh, equally supportive words for the EU, talking about it as an anecdote for excessive nationalism, um, talking about it as critical for security and stability. The third thing I think that would differentiate a potential Biden administration from a Trump administration would be a greater focus on democracy and universal rights. So things like freedom of the press, rule of law, and actually this could uh, ironically cause trouble for some of the countries that we've been closer to under a Trump administration. If I look at some of the recent statements released by Biden's folks, um, there was a statement on Poland recently. And under the Trump administration, Poland's been sort of the recipient of more U.S. forces. Um, There were some tough words there in terms of the need to respect rule of law um, and the balance of power. So I think some traditional allies who've benefited under a Trump administration uh, might actually struggle. Sorry, just sorry to interrupt, but I mean, just picking up that point. I mean, does that have some implications for the UK in terms of? I mean, Biden has also said some quite tough things about um, the Good Friday Agreement and the the importance that he places on that, which might have implications for uh, for a, the future trade relationship with the. UK, if the UK goes ahead with um, breaking the uh, the Northern Ireland Protocol of the Withdrawal Agreement that uh, uh, we signed up to last year, I mean, is that something he's likely to be quite strong on? Well, I'm actually less worried about the impact on US-UK relations um, for a couple of reasons. First of all, you know, the factors that underpin the unique, uniquely close relationship the US has with the UK, they run deep and they they transcend politics and personalities. So things like 
our nuclear cooperation, our close intelligence cooperation. Uh, we're side by side in most military operations. So those things are going to withstand any change of personality um, or leadership on either side of the Atlantic. Um, also, for me, watching the optics on the surface of a good Prime Minister Johnson, President Trump relationship, in reality, that's that's produced very little. Um, I, I have yet to see meaningful progress on a free trade agreement. Um, you know, basically, the, the current administration had to strong arm the UK and threaten the UK into backing away from 5G rather than having a more um, back and forth conversation. So in many ways, I think there is more alignment uh, with a Biden presidency in terms of policy issues. So on NATO, on the Paris Climate Accords, on Iran, on Russia, um, on the U.S. being part of the World Health Organization, on all of those, I actually see more alignment with, with Biden. Um, you know, in terms of the internal market bill, I always like to distinguish between politics and policy. And we are in election season. And, you know, Biden is a, trying to appeal to um, Irish Americans, Catholic Americans. And so I think the statement you referred to about a trade deal between the U.S. and the U.K. being contingent on respect for the Good Friday Agreement, um, and no hard border is is a bit of that. I think when it came down to it, any future um, US UK FTA uh, would would be based on common interests. Um, that said, I don't think it's going to be a priority for the administration. I think in the first instance, Biden has made it pretty clear that he's going to focus on the domestic economy and coronavirus recovery. Um, and so trade is something that would either be handled outside of the president's office um, or or later in, in the Biden administration. Right. Got it. Got it. Um, I, I want to pick up on uh, on something that Rachel said, Corey, and that was about 5G. And, and to say, you know, where, where do we go with Trump and China? Uh, you know, he, on, on, in some ways, he's been very tough on China. In other ways, he's been quite conciliatory when uh, he needed Xi Jinping to, to arrange his summit meeting with um, Kim Jong-un. So, you know, wh what would a second Trump term mean for US-China relations? And would he expect something from his um, from his allies in a confrontation with China? Would he expect, you know, kind of unquestioning loyalty if there were a confrontation in the South China Sea? I'm not sure anyone would expect uh, unflinching loyalty from allies, because they're just starting to think about the challenges you know, my favorite reflection on this actually came at a CER event in about 2005 or six, when Norway's foreign minister, Espen Barth Ida, reminded us all that China isn't just rising for the United States, it's rising for Europe as well. And I think what you see in the 5G mm -hmm. debate, as well as in the China debate more broadly, is Europeans beginning to worry about this problem. I noticed in yesterday's or the day before speech by the German defense minister that she talked about China as a challenge entirely in an economic sense. There was no mention of the national security law in Hong Kong. There was no mention of a million Uyghur in concentration camps. So I think Europeans are beginning to pay attention and an administration of either stripe will have increasing expectations of managing the problem with European help. Um, a Biden administration would be a lot more graceful about it, would, you know, make decisions in conjunction with allies rather than doing things to allies. 
as the Trump administration has. But I think we're all going to have a problem uh, managing a rising China because they're getting more aggressive, not less. The problem with Trump administration policy on China is that the military leg of it has outrun all of the other elements of government policy. So it either is over-militarized or is easily misunderstood as over-militarized. The other agencies, Treasury, State, begin to catch up. So it's possible that in a second Trump term, they would iron out the internal contradictions and get the get the relative speed of different actions closer to right. But I think you, Ian, put your finger on the most important problem, which is President Trump himself. And I would point to the decisions he made about um, TikTok, banning TikTok in the U.S., where you know President Trump's personal decisions on that, the belief that uh, the U.S. should get a bounty for arranging the deal, choosing a preferred American company, Oracle, to be the partner for it, um, and harassment of a foreign company, you know, that's basically indistinguishable from the behavior of the government of China. And so I, my central worry about a second Trump term in American foreign and national security policy is that we will become little different and no better than what we are trying to organize others to help us prevent. Mm, interesting point. Let me let me ask you one sort of follow up, which is China related, and that's about um, climate change and so on. I mean, we've got a big event in the UK in uh, 2021, the uh, COP26, the next climate change summit. Um, and it's an area in which the Chinese seem to be stealing a march on the, the US with uh, Xi Jinping announcing, you know, far reaching targets for cuts in emissions and so on. Um, do you think that that uh, anyone can persuade Trump to moderate his climate change skepticism, or you know, are we basically stuck with a, a Trump who, as you said earlier, doesn't really learn and and believes that he knows that climate change is a hoax? No, I do not believe any persuasion or information will dissuade the president from his belief that climate change is a hoax. Okay, that's quite a depressing conclusion, not least, I should think, for Boris Johnson's chances of having a very successful uh, summit next year in uh, in Glasgow, but we'll see. It may be successful just without American participation. I think okay. if Trump gets reelected, you will see the construction of an international order that excludes American participation and tries to buffer countries against American influence. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Rachel, I mean, it, it it seems like Biden at the moment is facing kind of two lots of pressures on the climate change issue. Uh, you know, there's the, the sort of proponents of the new Green Deal and, and the kind of left wing, if I can put it that way, of the Democratic Party. But also now he seems to have upset people in oil and gas producing states. Do you, you know, do you have any sense of what kind of Biden we might see at a at a COP twenty six, or I don't know whether he'll come in person, or, you know, what kind of U.S. representation um, a Biden administration would uh, would send to Glasgow? Well, I 
I think, you know, in the early days, you'd see, in fact, on day one, I believe Biden has said, um, you would see a U.S. return to the Paris Climate Accords. And I think, you know, in terms of turning up for, for the COP meetings in the U.K., uh, he might bring along, other than cabinet secretaries, some of the mayors um, and governors who've been responsible for uh, keeping the U.S. at least slightly on track in, in trying to work towards its climate goals. But you're right, there is this tension um, between, and again, this goes back to some of the domestic politics, uh, where uh, on the one hand, you have you know younger folks in the, in the Democratic Party for whom climate change is the number one priority. And I think smartly, um, Biden has linked... Um, sort of a green deal to economic recovery in a similar way that uh, the European Union has linked some of the COVID recovery funds uh, to green investments. Uh, but on the other hand, you know, he is appealing to, you know, those um, relying on more traditional sources of energy in Pennsylvania and Ohio. Um, so, you know, my personal view is maybe it was a bit precipitous to say that he would definitively end reliance on those forms of energy. Um, I think the reality is, is that it's an uptick um, in, in green options while we still have a pretty heavy reliance on, on gas and oil in the near term. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, the, the disadvantage that American leaders have by comparison with Xi Jinping is that they can't just sort of snap their fingers and say, right, you know, we will end the use of coal or whatever. As your point about the governors and mayors underlines, for good or ill, uh, there's a lot of devolution of power there. Perhaps we'll wrap this up in a moment, but perhaps, Nigel, I can turn back to you finally just to ask about the transition process, because you went through the, the transition from George W. Bush to, to Obama. I, I mean, I remember you had to deal with all the sort of British tabloid nonsense about Obama and the Winston Churchill bust. But if Biden is elected, if the polls are right, what are the do's and don'ts for European governments, and especially for the British government, in trying to get off on the, the right foot with the incoming administration? Well, I mean, I think it's going to be easier for, generally speaking, for um, for uh, EU governments than for the UK government. Um, everyone has to be patient during a transition process. It's an inward-looking process that everyone on the outside wants to somehow be part of, but that's always incredibly difficult. Um, and, uh, and I think we have to take account of that, first of all. Um, I think that um, uh, it's natural for um, for Biden, given his background, given the people he's going to appoint to key foreign policy and security positions, he's going to open you know, some early channels to to Merkel, to Macron, to the other um, European uh, European leaders. But I think we've got to be uh, the EU's got to be ready for a couple of things. First of all, that um, this isn't the Clinton period. Um, they've got to remember that um, that uh, the Obama period was also a period of strategic reticence. I think was the phrase, um, and America is um, is going to be uh, preoccupied with other things and not really concentrating on its uh, external relations as the number one priority. And when it does, is going to do so cautiously and from a position that the United States has changed fundamentally in the last twenty years. Secondly, I think that Europe has to be ready for some asks. Um, certainly, there'll be a tendency to bring allies in and to be more elegant and graceful about it. Um, but we're going to have to be ready, uh, Europe's going to have to be ready for um, to be collaborative and to have, um, to have skin in the game and options to put on the table. And I'm not sure that I'm, we haven't grown, uh, Europe hasn't grown out of the habit of doing that. For the UK, I think it's much more delicate. 
Um, the most important thing the UK can do to be taken seriously in Washington is to get an EU deal. Um, however important the Northern Ireland angle is for the, for the FDA, and I heard what Rachel said about that earlier, the truth is that Biden and the people around him think Brexit was a huge mistake. Um, and they will believe when they analyze the UK that our chances of playing a serious role in the world over the next decade depend on our having something like a working relationship with our former European partners. And if the deal collapses completely over the next few weeks and we have um, you know, months and years of um, trying to get back on an even keel between Britain and Europe, um, I think that will, um, w- that will convince a lot of people around Biden um, that we are not to be taken desperately seriously. So that's the first thing. Um, and the second thing is, I think, for the UK, uh, it is going to be, it will be a bumpy few weeks and maybe a first few months with a Biden administration for the reason you give here. Now, our, our media go into overdrive at the time of a transition like this and are looking for, for insults and injuries. Um, uh, I don't expect um, Boris Johnson to be the first European uh, into the White House under a Biden administration. If he is, brilliant. But he, he, he mustn't establish that um, as, uh, as, as, as a great likelihood. So be patient. I think in the long run, as Rachel was saying earlier, the truth is that the foreign policy and uh, international economic positions the UK takes up under a Johnson administration are quite aligned with what a Biden administration will come, will come up with. Last point, sorry to go on. Last point is the Biden um, uh, presidency, if there is one, will be one in which uh, uh, it won't just be a one-man show. They'll have to get out of the habit of uh, worrying only about what the president himself thinks, as they have under Trump. It'll be a much more collective effort, and Biden will give a lot of power to his um, uh, to his uh, cabinet members and to key officials. And that means on the UK side, we've got to get back into the habit of using officials, obviously in the UK relationship, using intelligence and the military, um, um, to use our influence with them and to build up that network, which actually is the the real um, the real uh, characteristic of the UK-US relationship. Yeah, well, I think that's a good note, note to uh, to end on um, your successor, but. To Karen Pierce will certainly have her work cut out, I guess, whoever wins the election. Um, so uh, I'd like to, to thank all three of you, uh, to Corey, Rachel, and to you, Nigel. Um, I think it's been an interesting discussion. It's going to be an interesting few days, and I shall be waking up with trepidation on the uh, 4th of November to find out, hopefully to find out who's won, although possibly to to wait for the counting of postal votes <laughs> anyway thanks very much to all of you and thanks very much thank to you. everyone for listening thank you for listening to the CER podcast if you have any feedback for us or want to leave suggestions for a future episode then you can find us on twitter at CER underscore eu <laughs>